So we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 20, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 25. It says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent you, saying, Deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever they please, whatever pleases you, and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble, for he sent uh, to me for my wives and my children and for all silver and gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do to me all, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was eating with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, and he said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the, ban- the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232, and after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So earlier this year, it was uh, probably like the middle of January, we had a snowstorm. And I remember going out at my house and uh, snow blowing it. It wasn't a huge deal. And then I was thinking about the snow at the church and thinking about coming and shoveling it. Now, I was thinking that maybe I would stop by and, uh, you know, just shovel it, maybe take me about 20 minutes uh, we didn't have anybody living in the parsonage at the time, so I'm thinking it's just the sidewalks, it's just clearing a spot, uh, just clearing out the doors. I'm thinking it's only going to take me a few minutes. And then I get to the church with, ready with a shovel, 
and I look and I see this. It's like four feet high, can't even get to the garage. I'm like, this is going to take me longer than 20 minutes. And so I see the snow that's that high, and uh, what am I going to do? I think i got to get the snowblower going. So I go into the garage and start the snowblower, and it starts for like two minutes, and then it dies. But that was encouraging. I'm thinking at least it started. So I'm thinking maybe if I go get some new gas, maybe, maybe the gas is bad. So I'll get, get some new gas, and the fresh gas will make it start. So I go and get some fresh gas. It won't even start at all. Just keep trying, keep trying. And then I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? So I start shoveling. And after a few minutes, I realize I'm not going to be able to do this. I had something going on in the afternoon. I didn't have time to shovel all of this. Uh, and I didn't think I would physically make it to shovel all of this. I'm like, what am I going to do? I, I had a snowblower at my house, but it was, I thought it was too heavy to carry, uh, to, to put in my car. I didn't even know if it would fit. Um, so I'm looking at this snowbank and just feeling so helpless, like, what am I going to do? i got to clear this snow, but I don't have a snowblower, and I don't have time to shovel it. Now, that was a really small thing, really small obstacle. And eventually I was able to deal with that. But in life, we often face those situations, situations where we feel helpless, where we don't know which way to turn, where we feel like we're in situations that are almost impossible or insurmountable. Maybe it's we're in a job that we hate. We hate the job, but we feel like we have to be there to make a living and we don't see any way out. Maybe it's a marriage that seems like a dead end seems like it's hopeless. Maybe we have a great need. Maybe we need, uh, maybe we need something done to our house, or maybe we just have a debt that we need to uh, repay, and we just don't know where the money is going to come from, and it just seems insurmountable. Maybe it's an injustice that's so big and so bad that it just seems insurmountable. We feel like there's no way that we could make any headway against it. Maybe it's a relationship that we have that's been broken for years, and we feel like there's no way to restore that relationship. Maybe it's a health difficulty that we just can't make headway against. We all face those situations in our life, situations that seem insurmountable, that seem impossible. And in this passage that we're looking at today, Ahab faces that exact problem. So it says in the text that the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, comes against him with 32 kings, and they surround Samaria where he is, and they make some pretty hefty demands. Ben-Hadad says, bring out your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. You can tell how bad the situation is because Ahab says, okay, I'll do that. I mean, it's an enormous request. I mean, that's what you'd think you'd be fighting for, your, your possessions, your silver, your gold, your wives, your children. you think that's what you would fight for, but the situation is so bad that he's like, okay, you can have all of those things. And further, he refers to uh, Ben-Hadad as my Lord. Now, when we think about the term Lord, oftentimes... Um, we think about it in a religious sense. You know, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And of course, you know, today that's the primary sense that we use it in. But back then when we were, they were referring to Lord, it wasn't necessarily a religious thing. It's that just one party is greater than the other party. 
And oftentimes they would enter into what was called suzerain vassal treaties, and one party would be the suzerain, which would be kind of like the, the greater, stronger power, and they would enter into a covenant with the vassal who was weaker, and the vassal, in a sense, would serve the suzerain. And so he refers to Ben-Hadad as my Lord, which may have even indicated a prior relationship, that they were in a suzerain-vassal treaty, that he recognizes that Ben-Hadad is stronger than him, and that he's the one in charge. And so right off the bat, before there's any fighting, he surrenders. And oftentimes when we're facing a seemingly impossible situation, that's what we do. We kind of surrender. And now, this can be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, we come to the end of our uh, resources and we realize, I can't win. I can't defeat this giant on my own. And it's a good thing when we recognize that and we turn to God, but it's a bad thing when we recognize that and we just kind of think, well, well, well I can't control it. I'm going to, you know, fate controls my life, and then it kind of leads us to despair. And so surrender in that sense, it can be good, it can be bad. I think in, ba- in Ahab's case, it was bad. He just gives up. Yeah, you can take my silver, you can take the gold, you can take my, our, our wives, take our children. Here it is. He just gives up. That's often what we do in, this, in the face of seemingly impossible situations. Uh, sometimes maybe we're praying for something, we pray, we're praying for a long time, and uh, maybe we're praying that somebody would change, or someone would come to know the Lord. And it just seems like they get further and further from the Lord. Maybe we get to a point where we just stop praying. And it's like we just, we just give up. We just stop trying. That's where Ahab is. But what's remarkable is Ben-Hadad takes this a little bit further. And he says, yeah, I know I asked for your silver, your gold, your wives, your children, but I don't think that's going to be enough. I'm going to send my servants through your city, and they're going to just take whatever they they want. They're just going to pillage your household, and whatever they see they like, they're going to take it. And finally, Ahab comes to the realization, like, that's not okay. I was okay giving my silver, my gold, my wives, my children, but you're not going to take everything from, from us. He comes to a point of resolve where he realizes, well, I might not be able to defeat these these foreign armies. I might not be able to defeat these 32 kings who are surrounding my city, but I'm not going to go down without a fight. I'd rather go down swinging. And sometimes when we're facing an impossible situation, specifically if it's really important to us, the second step is resolve. I mean, we might start, we kind of surrender, we realize we can't do it on our own, and then, but we still try anyways, because it's too important. It's too meaningful for us to just, to just let go. Might not make any difference, he knows that, but he has to do something. Now, if that's the end of the story, it ends in despair. If God is not involved in this situation, if, if Ahab resolves to fight, all of his people are going to be destroyed. I mean, the, the enemy is just that much stronger than he is, and they're surrounding him. So from a human standpoint, If he's just going to resolve to fight against them, he's going to fail. But often in those moments when we're facing seemingly impossible situations, God comes to us with a specific calling or a specific command. And he tells us what to do. He tells us the way out. An unnamed prophet comes to Ahab and speaks on behalf of God. And he says, 
You see this great multitude of people. You see these 32 kings surrounding you. I'm going to defeat them. Ahab's like, how are you going to do that? How are you going to defeat them? And he says, I'm going to defeat them with the servants of the governors. Now, the servants of the governors, they are not warriors. They are young men who are untrained in battle. And God says through the prophet, these are the people that I'm going to use to defeat these 32 kings. Okay. Ahab says, so what do you want me to do? Uh, who's going to start this battle? And God gives him a resounding, you are. You're going to start this battle. You're going to step forward in faith. You're going to take responsibility for this. We live in a culture where it's not popular to take responsibility. You know, just look at any president or any presidential candidate for the last 30 years. It doesn't matter which party you're talking about. None of them have ever made any mistakes. None of them have ever had situations where they wish they could do it over. Nobody ever does anything wrong, and if something bad happens, it's somebody else's fault. You know, that's how it works at the, you know, kind of the political level. It's always somebody else's fault. We never can admit that we're wrong. We did something wrong. We made a mistake. You know, and we know there's no authenticity there because we all make mistakes. Nobody has it all together. Nobody makes the right decisions all the time. But, you know, from that highest platform, it's like, we don't make mistakes. It's somebody else's fault. And again, it doesn't matter what party it is or who's in power. It's everyone who's in power. It's not my fault. We see that in all different areas of our life. You know, someone gets divorced, and it's, it's always the other person's fault. And, I, and of course, sometimes it is, but not all the time. You know, I've never had somebody come to me and say, hey, I got divorced, and the reason is because I'm a nasty, miserable person, and I'm hard to deal with. Now, sometimes that's true. Someone loses their job, and, you know, oftentimes it's not their fault, but sometimes it may, may be. But I've never had somebody come and tell me, well, I lost my job because I'm a bad employee. I show up late. I don't do good work. It's always, well, my boss did this. My boss did that. Uh, I made this little mistake. It wasn't a big deal. It's always somebody else's fault. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but have you ever had a, hired a contractor to do something and maybe they didn't, don't do the best job? And then you ask them about it. You confront them about it. And they always have some reason why it happened. It's like, well, there was oxygen in the air that day, and that reacted with the materials that I was using, and, you know, it wasn't my fault. It just, it just happens. We don't like to take responsibility. Done a little bit of ministry in prisons, and it's funny, you know, almost every prisoner you talk to, it's, it's, they're innocent. It's not their fault. What they did wasn't that bad. You know, when we think about this kind of corporate lack of responsibility where it's not popular to take responsibility, and in one sense, that's kind of, you know, kind of helps us psychologically. You know, we don't have to admit that we're wrong. It makes us feel good about ourselves. But there's a negative side of that. And I think that Satan uses this as a very powerful tool. And what he wants us to believe is he wants us to believe that we're victims. And if we don't take any responsibility. If we have no responsibility in our problems, we can't change. We're just victims. We're just products of fate. We just have to stay where we're at. 
We sin just because someone else does something wrong. It's not our fault. We can't change. It's because what he or she did to me. But there's always options. Imagine you decide you're going to take a boat and rent, it on, rent out a boat on Lake Erie. And before you rent out the boat, you look at the weather forecast, and it's supposed to be sunny and 75 degrees. You go out, there's not a cloud in the sky. But as you get out to the middle of the lake, the storm clouds come. The wind starts picking up. The waves start getting super high. The boat's getting tossed to and fro. You come to the realization this boat might sink. Now, is that your fault? No. I mean, you, you check the weather forecast. There was no clouds in the sky. Everything looked great. It's not your fault that the boat is sinking. But you still have options. You have a radio. You can call for help. You have a flare in the glove box. You can shoot it up to tell people where you're at. There's a life jacket you can put on so that if you do go overboard, you won't drown. And while the fact that the boat is sinking, it's not your fault, but you can still do something about it. There's things that happen in our life. There's bad things that happen to each and every one of us. And Satan wants to, us to believe that we're just victims. And in this story, Ahab can't control the fact that 32 kings have come against him. He can't control that. Now, of course, he had made some really bad decisions. He wasn't a, a good king by any stretch of the imagination. But he can't control the fact that 32 kings have surrounded him. But he can control whether or not he listens to the word of God. And God tells him, you, you're going to do something about this. You're going to take responsibility. You're going to attack the forces of Ben-Hadad, and I'm going to give you the victory. And I believe that God often gives us that same command. And when he tells us that command, when he says, you're going to do something about this, we're like, who, me? You, you must have the wrong guy. God does that in Scripture. He comes to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham says, you've got a problem here. I don't have one child. My wife is, is older. She's past childbearing years. You've got the wrong guy if you think that I'm going to become a, great become a great nation. He comes to Moses. He's like, you are going to lead my people out of slavery. Moses says, I'm not that kind of leader. I don't speak well. They're not going to listen to me. In fact, I was on the run from them and, and on the run from the Egyptians. You got the wrong guy comes to Gideon, who's hiding in a wine vat, uh, th threshing grain, and he says, go mighty warrior, and defeat the Midianites. Gideon is probably thinking to himself, you got the wrong guy. I'm not a mighty warrior. Look at me. I'm hiding in a wine vat. I don't want people to see what I'm doing, and I don't want them to steal my food. Jesus comes to the disciples. He comes to a disciple like Matthew, who's a tax collector. And Jesus, this great rabbi, comes and says, follow me. Matthew must have been thinking to himself, does he know who I am? Does he know that I'm a tax collector? Does he know that I steal from the Jewish people? Does he know that I'm dishonest? Did he know that that's who I am? He comes to others, Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me. They're probably thinking to themselves, does he realize we're just fishermen? You know, we're not learned men. We're not uh, priests. We're not religious leaders. Does he know who I am? And yet God says, 
Or Jesus says, I want you to follow me. In the context of seemingly impossible situations, often God says, you are going to do something about this. What situation in your life today is God saying that to you? You, you're going to do something about this. Again, the tendency of the human heart is to focus on other people's problems. To listen to a sermon like this and be like, oh, I hope my spouse is listening. Oh, I, I know someone who would really, really needs to hear this message. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 7, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What area or areas of your life is God saying, you do something about it? Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe, uh, maybe your boss is really difficult to deal with. Maybe God is calling you to do something, to show him love anyways, to forgive him or her anyways. Maybe he's calling you to leave the situation. I don't know what God is calling you to do. Maybe it's in our marriage. Maybe he wants us to focus not on how bad our spouse is or the things that irritate us about him or her, but rather, how can I honor Christ? How can I show love in my marriage? How can I be the change? Maybe we've had something that was done to us that's horrible. God says to us, yeah, I know what happened to you was bad and wrong and hurtful, but I'm asking you to forgive that person. Maybe there's a relationship that's estranged, and maybe it's not our fault. Maybe that person uh, did something that just severed that relationship. Maybe God is calling us today, you, do something about it. I'm not saying it's your fault, but I need you to do something. I need you to be an agent of reconciliation in this relationship. Maybe God is calling us to give a, up a sinful pattern in your life. We can make excuses for why uh, we, we do it, but God is saying, you just need to let this go. Maybe there's a person in our life who needs to know Jesus. And you're just praying that they would come to know Jesus. And maybe Jesus is telling you, you need to share the gospel with them. I mean, it's great to pray for them. It's great to hope that some other people come into their life, that they hear the gospel or go to church. Maybe he's saying, you need to share the gospel with that person. See, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control what we do in the moment. We can choose to obey God no matter what happens to us. We can't decide what happens to us, but we can choose to obey God no matter what happens to us. And God often gives those, those callings in the midst of impossible situations. And finally, in the face of these seemingly impossible situations, uh, God expects us to express faith in him as the God who is limitless, who, of the God who can do the impossible. God is calling Ahab to do something that is sort of foolish. It's kind of a suicide mission from a human standpoint to take the servants of the governors who have no training in warfare and they're going to go and attack 32 kings that have surrounded them. It's a foolish thing to do from a human standpoint. And yet through, the, through these forces, through the servants of the governor, Ahab is going to defeat the Syrians. And then after he defeats the Syrians, Ben-Hadad is going to be on the run and he's going to kind of regroup. 
And we see at the end of the passage we just read that Benadad is thinking to himself, well, it was the location that was the problem. I'm going to muster up all my forces, and then in the spring, we're going to attack them in a different location, and then they're not going to be able to protect themselves. He doesn't realize that it's not the location, it's their God. And so in the spring, we didn't read this passage, but in the spring, he attacks again, and uh, Israel defeats them, and 100,000 Syrians die in one day. But it requires faith. Ahab has to have faith that God is going to do something. Facing an impossible situation without God's help is the heart of foolishness. But God is going to call us to do things that seem foolish. He called Abraham to leave his homeland, leave his place of security, and he doesn't tell him where he's going to go. He says, go to a land, the land that I'll show you. After God fulfills a promise to him, gives him his son, Isaac, God calls him to sacrifice his son. Doesn't make any sense. This was his progeny. This was the one through whom he was going to become a great nation, and yet God says, sacrifice him on the altar. And we see that God provides a sacrifice. It says, Moses, I want you, someone who's on the run, who, was a, who was, uh, did some things that caused a lot of people not to like him, who's not the best speaker, who's not really that mighty or brave, he says, I want you to go and take on the greatest superpower of the world, Pharaoh, and lead my people out of Egypt. That didn't make sense. One man against the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Didn't make sense for Joshua to believe God. Joshua enters into the promised land, and there's giants in the land. They're much stronger than the Israelites. It didn't make sense for Joshua to attack them. And yet God says, I'm going to give you the victory. Gideon didn't make sense that he would use someone so weak and so scared to defeat the, the Midianites, and yet he did. He comes to Elijah, the prophet, and he says, I want you to speak a word of judgment against Ahab and against uh, this evil queen Jezebel who have the power to put him to death. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that he would go and speak that way to the king and the queen. Yeah, that's what God calls him to do. It didn't make sense when he calls the widow, remember the widow of Zarephath, the, how he called the widow to give of what she had for the prophet and then God provided for her. Didn't make sense that she would give of what she had. Calls the disciples. Says, I want you to follow me, even though you don't know where I'm going. I want you to follow me. Then after Jesus rises from the, from the dead, he says, disciples, I want you to go and proclaim my message. And you're going to face opposition, you're going to face persecution, but I'm going to be with you, and the victory is going to be won. God often calls us to do things that, from a human standpoint, don't make any sense. Maybe today he's calling us to love people who don't deserve to be loved when it doesn't make sense to love. Maybe he's calling us to give when it doesn't make sense to give. We don't have the resources to give. Maybe he's calling us to forgive when it doesn't make sense to forgive, when that person has done something so terrible to us. Maybe he's calling us to have peace when it doesn't make sense that we would have peace in this circumstance. 
that everything around us is crumbling, and yet he says, trust me, I'll be with you, I'll take care of you. Maybe some of us, maybe he's calling us to trust in his forgiveness. Maybe some of us have done things that are so wrong that we feel like no one could ever love us or no one could ever forgive us. And Christ is calling out and saying, look at my cross. Look at my blood. Believe that I died for you. Believe that you can be forgiven. God often calls us to do things that are impossible, that are foolish from a human standpoint. And the reason that he does that is so that he would get the glory so that we would get to see him working. And that's what it says in this passage. He tells Ahab, I'm going to use this to show you that I am God. Now again, Ahab was not a good king. He did a lot of terrible things. But God is is saying to him, I'm going to show you once and for all that I am who I say I am, that I am the Lord of the universe. And he does that in our lives. We're facing difficult circumstances, and he comes and and gives us a command or a calling. He tells us what we should be doing, and then we obey him, and then he provides. And it's like that faith is kind of like a muscle. It's like he provides for us, and then we trust him a little bit more. He provides for us, we trust him a little bit more and more and more. That's what last week was about as we talked about the faithfulness of God to us as a church. That he's provided for us in the past. He's been there for us in the past. He's going to be there for us in the future. See, in the face of seemingly impossible situations, often our first response is we often surrender. We realize the task is too great for us. And oftentimes in our life, that's the case. There's things that we face that are just too big for us. Then sometimes we get to a place of resolve that we, we got to do something. Even if we go down swinging, even if we're going to lose, we got to do something to change the circumstance. And in that situation, God comes and says, here's the way out. I need you to trust me. I need you to believe in me. And as we exercise that faith in the limitless God, he shows himself faithful. And as we do that, we get stronger and stronger in our faith. And his calling to us, it's personal. He doesn't always tell us fully what he's going to do. He doesn't tell us what other people are going to do. He tells us what we need to do. And as we obey him in those things, he takes our faith and our obedience and he multiplies it a hundredfold. 